uh, June 19th, 2022. What I'd like to discuss with you this morning, the name of the class is Halakha and the Limits of Genius. And it was specifically inspired by a class I gave just two weeks ago on Shabbat, or actually a week ago on Shabbat. And in that class, which I was discussing, in which I was discussing Birkat HaGomel, of course, before the deal season, we were talking about Birkat HaGomel and Filat HaDerech. In Hacham Ovadia Yosef's She'elot Teshubot Yehavedat, he raised the opinion of a specific individual. I'd like to talk about that rabbi, and in turn, a certain understanding or understandings of halacha. The rabbi that he cited, his name was Rabbi Yosef Rosen. Rabbi Yosef Rosen, who was better known as the Ragachaver Gaon. If you see even the, the painting over here, he lived from 1858 to 1936. He's not exactly, I think, the image. That's right. Firstly, a Sfaradi, strong, not with a big smile on my face. But secondly, even amongst Ashkenazim, I don't know, that sort of hair. And if you see pictures of him in, you know, not paintings, he had a lot of hair that seemed as if he never cut his hair. That's already a specific personality when you look at him and you understand. What's that? Almost looks like a Nazir, but he wasn't a Nazir. But he had a specific and particular personality, both based on legend and lore and facts, which give you a glimpse of why he looked like that. His hair was not uh, telling a different story than his essence. For example, just with regards to who he was, again, the, his personality will be a jumping point for us. It'll be a starting point for understanding the system of halakha on a deeper level in this issue. So the, the brief biology, again, he was 1858 to 1936. He grew up in a town called Ragachov. So he was a, from a Chabad Hasidic family. He quickly, at a young age, was known as a tremendous genius, and he made his way out into the Lithuanian, less Hasidic world. He was a rabbi in a city known as Tvinsk over the course of most of his career, uh, together with another rabbi. Now, what he was marked by was not only his genius, but his wit, and his way of saying things differently than anyone else. To give you just a few brief examples with regards to how unique he was. First and foremost, with regards to the hair, there are legends that abound to as, well, as to why he had hair of that fashion. The claim was he wouldn't take his kippah off his head for a single moment because then he'd have to stop thinking words of Torah so he wouldn't take a haircut. That sounds like a ridiculous statement, but if you know the personality, it might match it. Uh, but he was also, he had a particular way to him, which means to say he had a way of enmeshing halakha and philosophy. So he'd be asked a question in halakha and he'd answer based on Harambam's words in Moreh Nebuchim, for example. Generally two zones and domains which you wouldn't imagine would cross. Uh, furthermore, he had this way of, you know, people would ask him questions and instead of directly answering their question in writing, he'd cite a lot of different sources. So he'd give an answer of ayin this source and ayin that source and ayin another source to look into all different sources. He was hoping through his citations you'd pick up on his message. The story has it, someone asked him a question and he said ayin this and ayin that and ayin that, five, six sources and they looked them up and it appeared as if none had one to do with the other until they realized there was one common denominator and that was each one of the sources we're dealing with and am ha'aretz and am Artist is an ignoramus. Effectively, what he was telling the questioner was, You're an idiot, and this question was an idiotic question, but that was the personality. The other story that's told, whether it's true or not, is that he one time got angry at the commentary of Tosafot on the page. In his anger and his rage, he ripped out the commentary of Tosafot. Again, he dealt with a brilliant mind, but he was unhappy. And so they turned to him and said, We understand you didn't like Tosafot, but what about on the other side of the page? It's Rashi. Rashi, did he do anything wrong? So to which he answered, Oila wrong, so then Rashi's uh, just as guilty. That was the personality, to the extent that in the intellectual biography that Rabbi Zevin, Rabbi Zevin in source number one in his book Ishim Vishitot, Rabbi Zevin was the founder of Encyclopedia Talmudit. For many years he put together what has continued after his death, hasn't been finished yet, an encyclopedia of Talmudic issues and concepts. Anyway, he has this book called Ishim Vishitot. In his book Ishim Vishitot, he took different personalities, all Ashkenazic, 
from, call it the last 150 or so years, and he writes intellectual biographies about them, not just about their history and their doings, but their thought as well. So in his Ishim Vishitot, he tells several both stories about him, halakha statements that he made, talks about his way to life, understanding of Torah, and in that context, and I'll give you another picture as to this personality, he writes the following, he says it was known or it was said about the Ragachavar that when he was in Avelut, and in every year on Chabeav, instead of refraining from words of Torah, he would talk words of Torah. But it's forbidden to talk words of Torah during Avelut. It's forbidden on Chabeav. So the question was posed to him, Rabbi, how's that possible? His response was, if this is, according to the legend, if this is the worst that I'm going to be prosecuted for in the Beddin Shel Ma'ala, then I'm doing all right, but I can't hold back. That's the statement, that's the personality already I'm trying to portray to you of who this Ragachavar Gaon really was. In English, there's this book by uh, a, a certain Dovber Schwartz in which he effectively takes the earlier research and conversations about the Ragachavar and breaks it down. It's an easy read with con- concepts that are profound and fundamental. Again, because it touches both in halacha and in philosophy, reading his work in Hebrew in its original is sometimes very daunting. He's just citing, look here and look there, and assuming you're going to do the research, but he would write prolifically in that fashion over the course of the last several decades there's been an attempt to publish a lot of his works there's amazing stories about how they saved a lot of his works keep in mind he died in 1936 1936 is right before the absolute outbreak of war in Europe his manuscripts were saved on microfilm his daughter who had moved to Israel in Tel Aviv moved back in order to save the microfilm saved the microfilm by sending them to America, but she was caught in Europe and died in the Holocaust, effectively, as she was saving her father's works. Anyway, that all being the case, so that's the statement with regards to the Shabbat. Now, I just want to demonstrate the personality for you to, to, for just a moment. Uh, you see, it still doesn't paint him in such a positive light. I'm sure ripping out Tosafot doesn't either, but how do you rationalize that? Maybe you don't. Alternatively, just a few years ago, in source number two, Rabbi Mazuz, who's a, a name and personality I I've cited on more than one occasion. He's a rabbi of Yeshivat Kisera Hamim in Bnei Brak today. Uh, in his Shi'ur, which he gives on every Mosai Shabbat, it's published subsequently in this book, Hashi'ur, he suggests it says everybody got it wrong. Rabbi Zevin got it wrong. Sure, he talked words of Torah and Shabbat. Absolutely, he talked it during his Avelut, but you don't understand why. In Talmud Yerushalmi, which of course is the parallel to what we have as Talmud Bavli, what we generally study in Gemara, there's a passage over there that says that individuals individuals who are hoshek batorah, of such a passion and lust for Torah, they have a different status with regards to these days. Whereas the Hamon Am should not and may not be involved in Torah in those situations, these individuals, maybe one in a generation, one in every ten generations, whatever it is, they have, in the eyes of the rabbis, a permissibility. Of course, Ezra will say that's the rabbis understanding the system which they, to a certain extent, constructed with regards to Torah and giving the leeway in those contexts. Chacham Vadia Yosef, in fact, in source number three, develops this as well. He quotes from Talmud Yerushalmi. He comments on something that Ben Yishai wrote in his Ben Yehoyada about how there was an individual who would study and people couldn't understand it suggestion is it's that sort of personality but that's the personality we're dealing with i'm trying to in the uh, in the initial stages of this class to paint for you a certain typology a certain personality not a uh, not even a genius a super genius an out of the norm genius a person who wasn't amongst people in the regular fashion whom with whom you couldn't engage in a regular conversation with whom if you tried to for lack of a better word to heki he wouldn't really be on the same wavelength as you and if you talked in Torah maybe he'd explain to you something but the method and the approach was very different than one in which I imagine any of us have experienced in our lives we've spoken to super brilliant people but generally speaking at the very least I can debate I can discuss I'll question over here it was very difficult to do so along those lines just finishing the thought the Gemara in Masechet Yevamot in source number five Harambam in source number excuse me source number four, Arambam in source number five, talk about a specific personality 
from the time of the Mishnah. He was a contemporary, even the son-in-law of Rabbi Akiva. His name was Ben Azai. Ben Azai spoke forcefully about the mitzvah of Peru Urvu, of procreating. His students, his contemporaries, turned to him and said, but what about you? And the legend has it, as the Gemara tells us, Ben Azai never got involved in a relationship wherein he had children, didn't even seemingly attempt to do so. Maybe he started, but he wasn't able to follow through. And the response in turn of Ben Azai and codified Lahalacha by Haram Bam in source number five and by Shuhan Aruch is Nafshi Hashikaba Torah. I'm so lustful for the Torah, I can't get my mind out of it. Again, a personality that is difficult, if not impossible for us to be able to understand and see eye to eye with, but that's the sort of person. Pause for a second. How many of you, I don't really want an answer because something might ruin it, how many of you actually know the name Ben Azai? Very few, I'd imagine. Wrong answer. You're supposed to keep it down. Uh, how many of you know the name Rabbi Akiva? We all know the name Rabbi Akiva. That's already interesting. The super brilliant individual who couldn't take his mind off of Torah. Not to say Rabbi Akiva could, and, but Rabbi Akiva is not Ben Azar. Rabbi Akiva did have children. According to many opinions, Rabbi Yoshua Ben Korchai is his child. Uh, ben Azai attempted to get married to his daughter. He had a daughter. Rabbi Akiva was involved in procreation. Rabbi Akiva, we know. Interestingly, or maybe not so interestingly, Ben Azai is not that personality whom we remember within our corpus of law. Methodologically speaking, Ben Azai is not a primary player in the development of halakha throughout the generations. That's already, for me, a vantage point and a direction to talking about what I, what I described at the top of the page, the limits of genius. To be a genius, to be an individual, who's on a different wavelength than the people, well, it's certainly true that you'll discover, if you do it right, uh, matters and concepts that were difficult, if not impossible, for the Hamon Am. But for you to become a part of a system of halakha will be altogether different. For Albert Einstein, lehavdil, Musa Mamash, lehavdil, for Albert Einstein to develop and to understand the theory of relativity, we needed Albert Einstein. For Albert Einstein to play a role in a law system, which by definition needs the engagement of other people, needs the understanding of a system that preceded him and is going to follow thereafter, is not as simple. It's in that context that I bring you forward for a moment or two into the piske halacha of this same individual, this Ragachavar Gaon, to try to understand, so what have we done with his halachic decisions? How come in this crowd, although I know we don't know that many Ashkenazim, but we do know some, how come we don't know his name? Or maybe we do, but we only know something about him. So a little bit further in this respect, take a look at source number six. This is back to the book by Rabbi Zevin, the, his book Ishim Vishitot, in which he's describing the personality. Viodea Viodea Hagaon, or the Gaon Harogatrovi et Irko, he knew his personality, he knew his value and his worth. To the extent that, he says about the Ragachavar, he was not interested in the Aharonim. After the time of what we, recall, what we refer to as the Rishonim, call it the medieval time period commentators on Talmud and Halakha, uh, Rabbi Rosen was not interested in studying, citing, or really paying attention to the other opinions. Even the early Aharonim, whom we might describe as Baran, Rabbi Yosef Karo. Ragachava was generally speaking not so interested in them. He doesn't mention them and he doesn't cite them. But why not? I remind you again of the personality. The personality is one who thinks out of the box. The personality is one who's on a different wavelength. As a result, the system that preceded him had much less bearing in his development of understanding of halakha. Even when it comes to the medieval commentators and rabbis, he might cite them. You can't be in this system without drawing from them. And he describes and explains their words. Generally speaking, he doesn't, as is generally the approach in the halakha system, just accept their opinions and work with them. Instead, says Rabbi Zevin, and a separate important conversation which we've had and should have again, he preferred the opinion of Harambam. 
Why did he prefer the opinion of Harambam? Because Harambam never cites his sources. Because Harambam is brief and to the point in his words and open in turn to interpretation. Effectively, what Rabbi Sevin is saying is that the Raghachava was able to read from Harambam and say, this is what he meant because this is how I understand it. We already understand an individual, a rabbi of this genius level, will have difficulty mixing his way into the halakha system, mixing his way into a system that by definition needs a communal acceptance, needs buy-in and understanding and advancement by the people for whom it's being, to whom it's being preached. I've mentioned on more than one occasion, and I'll pause for a second to talk about this again, in the book by Avishai Bar Chaim, Ben Chaim on Chacham Ovadia Yosef, he points out the ability of Chacham Ovadia Yosef not only to think but also to execute. He was not only a thinker in halakha with a prolific pen and ability to describe, he was also a person who knew how to approach the masses. He taught, for all intents and purposes, only the masses. He wasn't involved in yeshivot with the elite. He was involved with the lay people. I more than once, dozens of times, attended his classes, his shi'urim. It was always simple guys in the crowd myself included. It was not the brilliant ones in the crowd. And he spoke in a simple fashion and he told stories as he developed the halakha. Brilliant! Because that's how he was effective. He was one of the first, I remember Ben Chaim pointing out, to televise and broadcast his classes across the world. He would be on the radio before televising and broadcasting across the world. He was reaching the masses. He purposefully, in, the, in publishing his books, had them subsidized. He didn't want to make money off of his books. He wanted his books to be accepted. A conversation Ricky and I have had in a different context. His vision was, I want my halakha to be effective. He knew how to do so. He found the issues that he wanted to work on and change, and he would bring them up again and again and again in any and every context. I think we did a class a year or two ago during the summer on Hadlakat Nerot on Erev Shabbat, and Chacham Yosef was working and working to change what was the widespread Sephardic custom, which in his mind was against Shohan Aruch and not the way that women should be doing it, lighting the candles and then making the Beracha, rather they should make a Beracha on Eid of Shabbat and then light the candles. And he set out to talk about this and to remind the people and to repeat it to the people and to bring it up in any and every context until, effectively speaking, I told the story, it came up at this class four years ago during the summer. My mother got married to my father, thinking that she was going to follow her mother's way, the Ashkenazic way of making the Beracha afterwards. My father explained to her, but it's not our way. We make the Beracha beforehand. My mother, listening to a class in which I was discussing this, started crying. She started crying. She told me afterwards I was crying because I had to change what my mother had done because I was getting married to and accepting the new custom. But now you're telling me that your father's mother or grandmother probably made the Beracha after the candle lighting. And it was just this important rabbi who changed it. But Hakam Yosef did not only affect people. As a matter of fact, he barely affected people with his genius. He more than that knew how to work the system appropriately, to talk to people, to engage in conversation about halakha, to fight the fights when necessary. We're talking about an individual who's on the opposite end of the spectrum with regards to this. He's the extreme who isn't really talking to people, isn't writing cogently, has no interest in... Hacham Vadya Yosef would write many of his later books, especially with a simple passage on the top that any lay person could read. And then the Nimukim, the details, all on the bottom. Sometimes there were discrepancies between what he wrote on the bottom and what he wrote on the top on purpose. But they listen to the mastermind, the genius of that approach. He has people who are not scholars reading his books just as much as he has the scholars. The Raghachava was the opposite. He's citing Ayin, look here. Ayin, look there. And it's, it, his brevity is, is, is similar to, but so different at the same time from what in this last generation who just passed away, Rab Chaim Kanievsky. Chaim Kanievsky, there will be and there have been dozens of books written about his one-word an, one answers. He would say, Ken or lo, or adif shelo, or things of that, or yes, no, better not to. 
And then we have books explaining why he said and how he said and so forth. It's similar along those lines in terms of brevity, but there was a greater depth even what he was citing. There was always a creativity. There was sometimes a sense of humor with regards to the Raghachava's responses. But already an individual, an important one, a genius, who's not able to and not interested in speaking to the people in the regular fashion, who's not buying into the regular system, but is rather a Yikoba Dina Tahar type of vision. Here's how I see it and here's how it's going to be. The question in turn will be, and I think I've led you on enough, to understanding how his halakha has or has not been accepted in the scheme of things. So here's the specific example I'd like to bring up. It's one that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the class that I talked about just a few weeks ago, and that is in the context of Tfilat Derech, and by extension in Birkat Gomil, if a person is to ride on an airplane, should they say Tfilat Derech, is it appropriate and necessary to say Birkat Gomil? So at first glance, initial thought, of course it is. I mean, well, it's a dangerous situation, is it not potentially? If I'm doing it for a long car ride, for a boat ride, the Gemara talks about, for getting out of jail, getting out of the hospital in specific circumstances, why wouldn't I on an airplane as well? The problem was this issue was never raised. Why was it never raised? Because we didn't have airplanes until the Wright brothers, of course. So what was the halakha? What is the halakha? Did the rabbis, when they described this halakha in Masech Berachot, talk specifically about four situations? Or are they a little bit more expansive? The Gemara already talks about midbarot those who walk in the deserts. Harambam changes the wording on that and says, Holche derachim. So he already is a little bit more expensive. It's not only deserts and desolate areas, but it's also anyone who's on pathway on some sort of journey and voyage, still not fully defined, and important conversations to be had with regards to the details in that respect. But what about airplanes? So there's a question that was raised, a question that was raised. And again, much of the details, lots of times when there's a contemporary issue, we can turn back and say, well, I can tap into that rabbi four or five hundred years ago who discussed it in a different context. The thing was that mobility was not a regular thing. We weren't traveling from one city to another all the time. It was rare. You had your shaliach. You had an individual from your community who would go out. You had a few business people, very few, especially amongst the Jewish, the Jews in both the, the Middle East and in the Western world. They were not moving. They weren't allowed to move. And their business uh, opportunities were far and were, were, were rare. It was not something that was done. So the questions were really never asked. They were never really developed until about two, three hundred years ago. Go. Fast forward another 200 years, and then you're dealing with this airplane issue with little ground, little structure to work within, with little clues as to what the halakha should be. Again, the halakha, ultimately speaking, amongst the majority view, as Hacham of Adia Yosef points out in source number eight in his Yahavedat, Chilik Bet Siman Kafav, is that you should, in similar situations, of course the details are important, but not the purpose of this class, be saying Berkata Gomel and Tfilat on an airplane. But the Ragachavar thought differently. How could he think differently? He cited a Gemara in Masechet Hulin, and Davkof Lametet Amudbet. The Gemara in Masechet Hulin is talking about the mitzvah of Shiluah Hakan. Shiluah Hakan, the Torah describes in Parashat Kitese, if you're on your derech, you're on your way, and you see Kan Sipor, you see the nest of a bird. What are you to do? You send away and you can take the babies and the eggs for yourself. That's the statement in the Torah. It's an enigmatic, mysterious mitzvah. There are linguistic similarities to Milhamet Amalek. There's lots to be said about it, perhaps in the Peshat respect. Philosophically, there's important conversations to be had, none of which I want to do right now. What I want to address is the Gemara Masechet Hulin that I mentioned. The Gemara Masechet Hulin says, what if the nest is in the middle of the ocean? Is that considered derech? So the Gemara cites a source that it's perhaps considered derech. Then the Gemara says, what if it's up in the heavens? What if he found, of course, it's a theoretical. The Gemara oftentimes has theoretical. What if he found the, the nest up in the sky? So the Gemara cites a pasuk that refers to the skies as derech hanesher. It's the pathway of the... Griffin Vulture, if you had Rabbi Haramadi. Right, Griffin Vulture, so maybe Eagle. Anyway, you don't have Rabbi Haramadi? No, no, Rabbi Haramadi, before Slifkin, Rabbi Haramadi. Sammy. All right, anyway, making me look bad here. Anyway, so that's, now the Gemara's response effectively is, that's the pathway of the birds, it's not our pathway. Said the Ragachava, oh, if that's the case, when I'm dealing with none other than tefilata derech, I'm talking about the derech of human beings, 
not the derech of griffin vultures, eagles, or hawks. I'm dealing with my derech. He effectively, the ocean is the pasuk and is the gemara. I understand, Rabbi. I understand your logical claim against it. But his claim is, well, if this is the way the rabbis fashioned this, if this was their understanding, perhaps of a mizmor and tehillim, maybe it needs to stay as such. I understand your claim. This has changed. It's no longer just the passageway, the pathway of the birds. But that was his claim. Do we accept it? Do we not? Chacham of Yosef says, uh, we don't. Uh, but why not? It's Ragachav. I mean, you know, he quotes a Gemara. Can you really refute it? You can logically, maybe. Can you really? Says Chacham of Yosef in a footnote in that I didn't put it on the page because I cite you instead the sources that he mentions. He says, you should know, we rarely follow the Piske Halacha of the Ragachavar. But why not? I'll give it a minute. Now we're going to get to that point. So we found a concrete, one concrete, although there are many other, example of where there's this issue. So in this book, in source number nine, it's a book called Rabbeinu. It was published posthumously right after the death of Hacham of Adya Yosef. This was his, uh, his, his assistant for many years who wrote the books together with him. His name was Rabbi Eliyahu Shitrit. And Rabbi Eliyahu Shitrit wrote this book called Rabbeinu. <laughs> Effectively, every single day when he worked together with Chacham Ovadia, he would keep a journal and he would write some of their conversations and things that they developed. So here in source number nine, he says, today we were developing a specific halacha and the rabbi wanted to quote from Safinat Pa'aneach. That's the book of the Ragachavar. And when he quoted it in his book, he called him Sar HaTorah, the master, the minister of Torah. And he smiled at me, my words, and he said to me, I'm very happy to be hanging myself on the Ragachavar over here. That was an interesting statement, right? Then Chacham Vadya continued and he said, but generally speaking, we don't talk like that. Like, what do you mean? He says, when it comes to Nisuim uh, Ezrahim, when it comes to civil marriages, there was and still is somewhat of a debate. Is a civil marriage halachically binding or not? Does a person need a get? Need a, is a person, a woman considered a uh, aguna if she just had a civil marriage? So Raghachavar's opinion is, she does. It's a minority opinion. Says Chacham Vadya Yosef, we don't follow his opinion because because, keyword, we don't understand that opinion. So already the limits of genius, are you going to argue empirically that he's wrong? Or alternatively, are you going to say, since I can't debate, since I can't engage in the conversation of human beings in determining this law, I can't count him as part of this conversation. That is for us the next stage with regards to understanding halakha and the significance. Now, just to... He, he understood it. Yeah, he just didn't want to approach it and use it. He said Obviously it with... The, I said on purpose, with yeah. a smile on his okay. face, but yeah. we don't understand Obviously, him. Right. Understood. And when he wanted to use him in Halichot Olam Chet, he says, who greater than the Ragachavar to go? Of course. Of course. Now, that being the case in source, sources number 10 through 14, Systematically, I produced for you, not through much research, thankfully it was all easy to find and quoted, and had s- several sources wherein uh, the last 60 or so years, rabbinic authorities stated one after the other, you should know the Ragachavar, we don't follow his Piske Halacha. To the extent that in source number 12 and uh, source number 11, that's from Rabbi Weinberg, that's from Sri Deesh. Sri Deesh, Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, was a well-known, he spent some time in, in, in Germany. He was a, a somewhat of a, a, Mark Shapiro wrote his a PhD on him. He died in 1966. Well-known for many reasons. His claim is that in Lithuania, we never followed the opinion of the Ragachavar. Again, the claim in each of these being, we didn't quote-unquote always understand him. I'm extending it, and they basically say it themselves. He didn't really work within our system. So he's an out-of-the-box genius thinker, but he's not within our system. And if this system is supposed to be one developed and engaged in by human beings, one to the other, until we arrive at a conclusion, we can't and couldn't really accept his opinion. It could be dangerous, but moreover, it could stifle the system. Maybe that is the danger. that give free reign to listening to ultimatums and it's the no same fear in other words another one of the danger another one of the dangers is well once we're accepting his word and accepting him as the authority because he's such a genius I don't know how to think differently exactly the point that I'm that, that I'm that I'm working toward exactly the fear throughout if this can't be a system which is debated 
If it can't be an opinion which is set forth and able to be challenged, it can't be accepted. If it didn't work within our system, if you came in and have a thought, but I had a revelation of sorts, it's already another one of these vantage points to understanding this concept mentioned in the Gemara and Masechet Bava Metzian Daf Nuntet. The statement of Lo Bashamayimhi, the Torah is not in the heavens. If it were in the heavens, we couldn't be developing and determining based on our understandings. Yes? On some of those issues, it's not you cannot debate him. You don't want to debate him. You don't want to legitimize your opinion. If you allow the government to get into halakha, Okay, but it's one of the, I, I think it's both. Ezra, Ezra, I'm with you. I'm with you. Abi was making a similar point earlier. It's that, it, it, but it, but it, they're both similar points. One is I have difficulty debating him. That's one. Alternatively, I could, but now I've given credence to his words, and in turn, words which fit out of the system, not in it. I'm not willing to do so. It's not to say I won't respect it. It's not to say I won't find uh, pearls of wisdom within it. That'll be in the case. I mentioned one precedence in Talmud for this. There's another better known one. This happens to be a rabbi. We do know his name. However, the Gemara says explicitly in Masechet Eruvin and Dafyot Gimal Bet, the rabbis of his generation at the very least could not and would not accept his determinations in halakha. I refer to the Bimeir. The Gemara says, Amar bi aha bar hanina, source number 15. Galui v'yadu alifne misha amar v'aya olam, she'en bedoro, shel rabi meir kamoto. It's well known to God that there was no one greater than Rabbi Meir in his generation. Rabbi Meir was a student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Meir was a great one, says Ravaha. So why didn't they establish law according to his opinion? Shelo, no, not the reason in the Gemara, but good one. Just, uh, uh, you know, then I'm in trouble. Because his friends, his contemporaries, could not understand, quote-unquote, his opinion. Now, is it that they couldn't understand it? The Gemara gives an example of what it means they couldn't understand it. Shehu omer al tahor umar elopanim, al tahor umar elopanim. He would claim about something that he knew was tameh, was impure. But maybe it's tahor, and he'd give an explanation for why. And something that he knew was tahor, he'd be able to engage and give a vantage point and a claim the other way. Effectively, what Rabbi Meir did, and this is a point made in this next source, source number 16, by Professor Moshe Kapel, it says effectively what Rabbi Meir would be doing is he'd be stifling the system. Instead of opening it to conversation, instead of saying, my claim is such, he'd say, your claim could be this, and I'll understand it, my claim is this, he, he, he bogged down the system. The system was no longer one of engagement, my opinion is such, can we have a conversation, I'll defend mine and you defend yours. Instead, he was just revealing it all. Instead, he was looking to, in his own way, or not looking to, effectively what he was doing was dismantling a system which was developed through engagement, through conversation, through dialogue, and stopping that through this har- uh, this Rabbi Meir approach. Yes, Dave? No apologies at the beginning. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So it sort of reminds me that in literature they have like a, a, an idea of deconstructing a book and usually when you deconstruct the book it ruins the book. Different thought over here. That's a separate conversation. But that was, I'll tell you what that's a reference to. That's a reference to what I said earlier that we've had conversations about and need to have more conversations about. And that is, if Harambam wrote X in his Mishneh Torah and I interpret it as Y, but I fit it into X, but then I find in his uh, response that he explains his own words differently. What validity is there to my interpretation? That, well, not so far. Oh, we, we should, that's a deconstructivist right. question in the context of halakha, which is long debate. That was the claim Rabbi Zevin had about the Ragachavar. It is related, but it's not, it's not per se the same point in this context. That, yes, I'm... As I, as I called the class, the limits of genius. He's too smart for the system. He's too smart to fit into a human dialogue system. 
I can't engage in conversation with you. It's not that I can't fight you. It's that every time I fight you, you have the other claim on the other side. This isn't a regular conversation any longer. But we yes. can respect them. Right? We can be of course, by it. nobody's... No, let me be clear. I'm not diminishing honor. I'm not diminishing honor. Nobody is at any point. He's cited in these contexts of halakha debates. The, the Gemara Masechet Hagiga, for example, in source number 17, on Davgim al-Amutbet, a specific pasuk in Kohelet, its specifics not, rel- not not important for us right now. The statement is in this Gemara, it's one of these many views can and should be accepted in Halakha. It's one of these along the lines of Masechet Eruvim Daf Yod Gimal of Elu Elu Divrei Elohim Hayim. But the Gemara says, you might say to yourself, Halalu mitame'in v'halalu mitame'in. Some rabbis say it's tameh, the others say it's tahor. Halalu machshirim v'halalu poslim. Some say it's kosher, the others say it's not. I mean, nothing that we're not all familiar with. Jeffrey Gindi's not here, but this synagogue says the end of Shabbat is this time, and that synagogue says the end of Shabbat is another time. He's disturbed by this to no end, for good reason. Uh, What's going on over here? Why can't we get a certain... uh, This is not something new to our 2022. This is something that has always existed. Says the Gemara, how am I going to determine halacha then? How am I going to ever arrive at... Says the Gemara, rest assured, they're all quote-unquote given to us from Moshe, which means to say fundamentally the vision of Halakha needs to be, was purposed to be, will continue to be one in which different options are available and put forth by other opinions to the extent that that's the vibrancy of the system, that I can and will debate it, that you'll have your opinion and I'll negate it and suggest mine. That effectively was the opposite, in my mind, of Rabbi Meir. That's why the Gemara says Rabbi Meir could not be the authority on Halakha. Yes? Is it possible, similar to how 200 years ago we couldn't anticipate an airplane, is it possible that the Chachamim of today may see some of the, the opinions of some of these rabbis, and instead of outright dismissing them, Maybe it's not something, a concept we could grasp today. Maybe Certainly. it's something that'll get revealed in a hundred or two hundred years from now. Certainly. Over the course... So they keep the system over the, perpetuated. Oh, so, so, so one sec, sorry. So Ricky's just raising it. It's in the same context. It's another nuanced point. But again, the point is, Ricky says, the fact that we keep the two opinions, even when we determined one over the other, is suggest, he's suggesting is... Keeping that other one means it might have a relevancy in the future. That's the statement in the Gemara, that there's a truth to both of them, quote-unquote, but one is more relevant to us now. For a long time, for a long time on the open house for the school, I would oftentimes take Gemarot, which debated obscure concepts, things that seemingly a two-headed person and so forth, and understand how the rabbis, when developing those points, seemingly were talking another language, but ultimately speaking, without Ruach HaKodesh, but talking about a concept, a theory that was relevant, not so much to them, became much more relevant in the future. If that Gemara had been erased, if there had been a determination of this is the way to see it, and you can hear it differently, and I'll get into those words in a moment, you're right. The system would have lost its life, would have become obsolete. That's effectively the point throughout all of this. Yes, Robin. Is it possible, not to diminish uh, uh, his genius, but is it possible that he had a certain characteristic that says, you know what, I don't want to work within the system? Certainly, and but is, I think that comes as a result of being a genius. But, but, I, but can't you make the argument that maybe because he didn't want to work within the system, he is able to say certain things and think certain ways, whereas Hamavaj Yosef says, the system to me is absolute, and by working in that framework, it's it a possibility. It's, I hear you. It's a possibility. What I'm telling you is, and I don't know, for an unconstrained mind like his, I don't know that he could have worked within the system. Rabbi, he followed the Rambam? The suggestion was of Rav Zevin, and this is a claim of many in different contexts, is Rambam's words are quote-unquote readable in a deconstructivist fashion. I can read my opinion into it and prove it from his words, even if he thought differently. You can't prove to me what he thought, because he doesn't source what he says, because he writes with a certain brevity. Now, that being the case... Is there a parallel statement, you know, you're not allowed to add or take away from the Torah. Is there a parallel statement that says you should be interpreting things according to the rabbis and have to put a 
I'm not certain I understand. Dave, this is what you're doing to me. Okay, so the Pasuk in the Torah says, yeah, of course. Oh, so it's a one foot, one foot answer, of course. The Torah does have a statement. That's right. You shouldn't veer from the word that they say to you, right or left. It's a reference to Sanhedrin. It's a reference to the ultimate authority. It has, over the course of generations, separate class, which we may have had, been interpreted at specific junctures. It's good Sammy Shammy's not here to yell at me for this one. As a rabbinic authority statement. It's not to say that the Torah says it explicitly. It's been an interpretation over time. Well, that all being the case, this is my, my last statement with regards to everything we've developed. Just very briefly capping what we're, recapping what we've done and then bringing it to its conclusion. It goes as follows. What we've suggested is a personality. It was, as I said, a springboard to understanding halacha in totality. A system which is not, quote unquote, an absolute statement, touching on absolute truth, but one which needs to be, by definition, understanding the relevancy to the people, understanding the generation, having conversations with others. So that springboard was this individual, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Raga Travagaon, again, 1858 to 1936. So give me a sec. Let's just let me get through this. We'll talk afterwards. So that personality was an important one because his authority on matters of thought was very much respected, on matters of law was neglected, and there was a reason for that, much as it would be Meir, similar to Ben Azai, here was a personality who stood outside of the normative understanding and approaches. Here was a personality who, who thought independently, who could not and would not write in a simple fashion, who could not and would not have those sorts of debates with others thought in his own way, gave little credence to those who preceded him, had little interest in what those who uh, his contemporaries were, and as a result, that's right, well, it happens to be, there are books, they're called Safinat Pa'aneh, that was his Yosef, like Yosef, we have his books, there is law that's studied from them, there's a certain respect to them, but authoritatively, it's rare that he has the bottom line statement. We look at his words and we marvel over their brilliance. We look at his words and we say they give us a peek into an understanding of a genius, a new vision of halakha, of Torah. Rarely is the halakha determined because, well, the Raghachavar stated as such, similar to what the Gemara says about Rabbi Meir. I'd like to, along those lines, spending a little, here's a little bit agada on this point, on the Rabbi Meir personality, immediately after that statement, the Gemara, Masechet Eruvin, and Dafyot Gimal, the Gemara makes a derasha about this name of Rabbi Meir. The Gemara suggests that his name was either really Rabbi Nehorai, Nehora means candle, means light. Meir, of course, means something that's bright and shining. But in truth, says the Gemara, his name was probably Rabbi Nehemiah. So why was he known as Rabbi Meir? Now again, listen to the context. We don't follow his opinion because he was too brilliant for us. Quote, unquote. He was too much a genius. Then says the Gemara, by the way, what was his name? Now again, you might, and I'm okay if you say if this is through your understanding of Talmud, you might say, oh, there's two statements, passages. Once we talk about it, be mayor, we mentioned something else. I'm going to suggest there's a relevancy to this next conversation, to what we just stated. The reason he was known as Rabbi Meir was because, says the Gemara, why so? Because he was Meir ene hachamim bahalacha. He would lighten, bring forth light to the eyes of the rabbis in halacha. Goes the Gemara further. Rabbi said about himself, You want to know why I'm so sharp? Sharper than my very modest. I'm joking. I was. You don't know why I find myself to be sharper than my contemporary, says Rabbi Meir? Because I saw the back of Rabbi Meir once, says Rabbi, because I saw the back of him. My sight, my vision. He cites a pasuk. It's all about sight. When we talk about this personality known as Rabbi Meir, we talk about vision. Vision is a very important word with regards to understanding and cognition. When I see something, when I show you something, I've closed a certain amount of debate and conversation. It's somewhat unequivocal. You know, we know the conversation. Let's go to the rabbi and see the words inside. Let's, can I see where the words are? Then we could debate it. Or I'll close the conversation once I... That's very different than I heard this. I heard it this way, you heard it that way. Anyone who studied Talmud even a bit knows that two words that appear a lot are ta shema. 
come and listen. Talmud Bavli is filled with those words, come and listen. To listen um, commands and demands of us a certain level known as Bina. It's in the words of the Mikubalim Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. He says, sight is Chochmah. And hearing is Bina. What's the difference between Chochman and Bina? I learned this lesson when I my Bar Mitzvah conversation with Hacham Baruch Alav HaShalom for you, Musa. In the Midrash, Hacham Baruch said to me, you know the difference between a Hacham and an Avon? I was 13 year old, but I was, no, I don't even know what the words mean. So he said to me, a Hacham is a person who has encyclopedic knowledge. A Navon, and I'm saying these words now, is Milashon Ben. In between, he's Mevin Davar Mitoch Davar. He's able to understand one matter from another. He hears in between the words. He sees in between the sentences. The difference between re'iyah, sight, and shimi'ah, hearing, is this point. Shimi'ah, Talmud Bavli says, listen to the other opinion. Debate it. Understand it accordingly. Re'iyah, and Talmud Yerushalmi always says, tahazeh. And Zohar says, tahazeh. Of course, come and see. Rabbi Meir may have been someone who would say, Meir, let me show to you. Tahazeh, that stunts. When everything is sight, when everything's determined by my vision, I'm no longer able to debate it with you. Did you hear it that way? How did you understand that? What was it that was said? If it was sight, it's, it's what the Torah says in Parashat Yitro. It's in source number 24. I'm not talking Peshat right now, so please excuse me. Rashi's interpretation to seeing sights from the rabbis is they saw sights. Not so hard to not so hard today any longer because the Alenu. We have these things. I have one in front of me. We have them on the wall sometimes. Sometimes we hold them on our laps. We have different technological devices in which we see sounds. That's effectively what we're doing. We put vision to sounds. Anytime I have an image which is talking or making, I'm seeing the sound. But, says Rashi, impossible. Says Rashi, it was the opportunity for them in that moment to have such clarity. Listen to the clarity. The clarity is described by the Torah in the eyes of the rabbis as sight of sounds. It's no longer what did you hear. It's we all saw it. That's prophecy in the eyes of the rabbis. That's so clear to the extent that there's a certain stunted level of conversation, of continuity, of vibrancy. Once it's all clear, once it's hard to debate, once all the angles have been been, been laid out, then how do we continue from here? In the uh, Morris, I see it to the corner of my eye right now. He and I have discussed this Gemara in source number 22. In Masechet Sanhedrin and Dafkaf Dalid, in the eyes of the rabbis, they talk about this name Bavil. This is the rabbis living in Bavil. It's actually to be Ohanan criticizing them, but it's in our Talmud Bavil. Bavli, so the Gemara says, what's Bavil? It's Balul. It's all mixed up. Says the Gemara, you want to know what Bavel is like? It's like being placed in the darkness. That sounds terrible. I don't want to learn Talmud Bavli any longer. Alternatively, says Nitziva Velazhin in source number 23, in the darkness, my words, you need to hear. In the light, you see the vibrancy, the movement, the challenges, the debate, the dialogue, the constancy of a growing system which keeps its relevancy to the people is specifically because there's an absence of sight. In the eyes, again, I told you I'm going to get a little midrashic, very midrashic here at the end. In the eyes of the rabbis, look at the difference before and after eating from Eitz Hadat. Before eating from Eitz Hadat, we have God's sight throughout the days of creation. As Hava is approaching that Eitz Hadat, she sees the tree, Kitob. She sees in it something. Immediately after eating from it, what does the Torah describe? How Adam and Hava the description between before, the discrepancy before and after is one of sight, where everything is clear and static and stagnant because there's no way of thinking differently. And afterwards, the world of humanity, as we know, the rabbis in Masechet Hagigan Daf Yod Bet describe, I know, this one you like just as much, same same statement. Adam Harishon was able to see from one side of the world to the other. What are they describing? Says Musa Or Haganus, didn't help me. What does that mean? It means absolute clarity. In their minds, this was a state and time in which there was clarity. Clarity is fantastic. 
it is fantastic in the abstract. It is fantastic for an Einstein theory, for a world of human beings, for a system purposed for human beings, known as halakha, hard if not impossible to make the claim that hearing is what we're about. To the extent, and I've been talking about this recently in other classes, I'll conclude with this, the rabbis have two funny statements, especially taken in tandem. First and foremost, the Gemaran source number 26 in Eruvin Daf Nundal, it said, had the tablets, the Luchot not been broken, we never would have forgotten Torah. Amazing statement, whatever it means. And then, alternatively, and in contrast, it appears, the Gemaran Masech Chaban Daf Pezayin says, that after Moshe shatters the Luchot, God says to him, Great job. One second, if I was going to be able to retain and understand and know the Torah, if they had not been broken, why is God praising him for breaking them? Not, none of this to be taken literally, only to be taken conceptually. The concept was one in which our prophetic experience would have led us into a static existence, one in which the luchot, the life of Torah, the life of connectedness with God, was stagnated. There wasn't conversation any longer. There were no trials, no tribulations, no conversations, no difficulties, no, no downs, no ups. There was no longer going to be the peaks and valleys. That's the shattering of the luchot. That was the responsibility, so to speak, of Moshe in that moment. That was in turn what we ironically, and I've said this on Shavuot, but nobody was there to hear it, you were all in Jersey. That was what we celebrate on Shavuot, ironically. Shavuot is the holiday, not of the reception of the Luchot. We broke those, Moshe broke those. Yom Kippur is the celebration of the reception of the lasting Luchot. It's the celebration of the breaking of the Luchot. Effectively, Shavuot is the time during which we embrace life with a vibrant life of Torah. It's where we understand that there are limits to genius. By being that genius, by having it all revealed, by being incapable of engaging in the regular dialogue, we in turn look at that individual, those opinions that have been the ears, the Ben Azais, the Ragachavers of our history and perhaps of our future as well, and we understand their significance and respect it. However, within the system of halakha, it oftentimes is the neglected opinion because when the sight, when the bimeir, when the genius of the ragachavar becomes front and foremost, when it becomes what's being preached, we understand that as a danger to our system on many levels, the most of which being the most the most, the most, for me, the most significant one being that we've lost the opportunity for engagement from others. We've lost the sensitivity to what the people are thinking and saying. We've now established it in a prophetic sense. We've effectively placed it back in the heavens, which we're cautioned against doing. And in turn, to understand halakha is to understand that there are limits to genius. And the deficiencies of human beings, ironically, is what propels this system forward in our engagement and dialogue conversation disagreement, sensitivities to others, to society, to community in establishing an enduring and life of Torah and Halakha. Baruch Adonai Amen.